Okay, I'm glad you're here. So let's just uh, start with a, a fun story that happened to me uh, this past week. So um, I'm, uh, I'm writing, producing the show, and um, we, uh, we, we were trying to get this uh, guest star to, to do one of the voices. It's, it's, a, it's an animated project. So um, let me just back up for a moment. So uh, the, the uh, person that I'm, I'm doing the show with, my partner on this is uh, sort of a, a surprising, interesting guy and uh, uh, not, not Jewish, so there are no halachic issues here, questions of Jewish law here. And um, what I mean by that is that uh, lately he's been showing up with new tattoos that are uh, always like sort of surprising. And so the other day he showed up with a tattoo of Weird Al Yankovic on, on his uh, forearm. And it just said uh, underneath it was his head with sort of a cartoon version of his head, but unmistakably him. And underneath it just said weird, right? And, um, you know, it's just sort of like a, a tribute to, uh, to him. And, and uh, anyway, there it was. So... So uh, a role came up uh, sometime after that, and 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 so the thought was, well, maybe we can get Weird Al to uh, to do this role. But you know, would he agree to do it? You know, he's not going to say yes to every role that gets sent to him and everything like this. So we were really hoping, and obviously there were some stakes here that he wasn't aware of <laughs> that that would make it extra special for for my partner on this, and. Uh, Sure enough, we got an email saying that uh, Weird Al has uh, agreed to do the part. So this past week, we, we recorded him in the studio, and he was fantastic, by the way. He was so professional and nice and friendly, and we were just throwing new material at him as he was recording, and he was, you know, just seamless in his ability to just sort of like, just nail it on the spot, and was just was just great with all this stuff. So, um, so anyway... Um, uh, after the record, the the it, there there was this sort of this moment where it was sort of like, wouldn't it be great uh, to get a picture of like you know my partner with with Weird Al, right? And and that that would be nice. And and he's sort of shy when it comes to these things. So so I said, hey, you know, you want me to get a picture of you and Weird Al? And he was like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, you know. So I was like, great. So I took a couple of pictures of them. And then I said, uh, I just sort of whispered to him to the side, I said, do you want to get a picture with your tattoo in him? You know, because I didn't know, like, you know, like, I, I didn't want to take anything for granted. And he said, he said, yeah, yeah. So he rolls up his sleeve and there's Weird Al tattooed to his forearm, and he's showing it to Weird Al. And the reaction was priceless, because, like I said, Weird Al looks at him and goes, No way! You know, it's like he just, his face lit up, and he was so happy, you know? <laughs> but to his credit, he didn't, like, he wasn't, overly happy and if you understand what I'm saying like he was he didn't like it, it just was like a testimony to him that this person like tattooed his face to his arm and that he was sort of delighted by it but that he wasn't you know he didn't go further with it he didn't like make it into some like crazy ego thing so that was very cool to see him sort of like react to that 
And then I took all these shots of, of you know, his face next to the tattoo of him and, and, and things like this. And, you know, and, uh, and so that was the end of the story. But let me tell you, besides the fact that it's kind of a crazy, fun story, let me tell you why I'm telling you this story. Because to me, this is just one, <laughs> one in a list of trillions of things why life is so absolutely fantastic. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. That episode, that story, that encounter almost ended with Weird Al leaving the recording studio and never knowing that there was a tattoo of his face on my friend's arm. <laughs> Do you understand how incredibly rich and complex life is? <laughs> like, you know the stuff, maybe you're aware of the stuff that's going on. Maybe. But do you realize how completely unaware that you are of all this stuff that's, well, that you're not aware of? Do, do you know the extent to which you are unaware of the stuff that you are unaware of? They say that the, the goal of learning, the goal of learning, and this is from a Torah perspective, the, the goal of learning is to be aware of how much you don't know. And that sounds counterintuitive, because you think you, you're supposed to, the goal of learning should be to know as much as possible. But remember, our brains are finite, and God is infinite. Right? This is a crucial dynamic that you have to have in, in your brain at all times. Which means that at a certain point, the greater appreciation of the infinity of God comes from knowing how much you don't know, since it's impossible to absorb the infinite within the finite. In other words, it actually becomes more constructive in terms of learning, in terms of being aware of the wild expanse that's out there that you can't grasp than it is to just simply grasp more and more things. So, so, it means that it's possible to have a whole conversation and professional encounter with someone who your face is tattooed to the, your, their body and you'll never find out. <laughs> now that's unlikely. It's unlikely. But it can happen, and I was witness to an event where it would have happened if I didn't say something. <laughs> so that's life. This is why life is so utterly fantastic, right? Um, so, I'll tell you another story, which isn't nearly as good, but just because I'm telling stories right now. So, yesterday in shul, I'm standing there, and, you know, it's really good not to talk in shul. Just everyone should know that. Just try your best not to talk in shul. Unless you absolutely have to. And then still don't talk. <laughs> you know, so, anyway... Someone comes up to me toward the end of Davani, and, and uh, they're saying Kaddish. So, no, you don't want to talk during Kaddish. And, and the person kind of signals something to me because he knows that I don't want to talk. But he wants to communicate to me something. And so he sort of like makes um, some hand gestures to me, and I, I don't know what he's saying, really. But I kind of like nod my head, just more nodding my head in sort of like sympathy that he's trying to 
communicate something to me more than that I'm actually understanding anything that he's saying. But then, he, but he takes the nod of my head as an okay to move forward. And so then he reaches into my hair <laughs> and pulls out a bobby pin, keeping my yarmulke on my head, and then walks away. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, well, I guess I just agreed to that, <laughs> right? <laughs> And then about, <laughs> about 15 minutes later after the davening, someone completely not connected to that episode at all said, said to me, yeah, that was really great. We really needed to pick open the lock to the bathroom. <laughs> so I guess that was the end to that story. <laughs> so of course my bobby pin would be the likely address for how do we pick open the lock to the bathroom. But anyway, there you have it. So that's, that's the other story. So um, again, you know, as Reb Shlomo would say over and over again, what do we know? What do we know? You know, we, we don't know anything. And, and you can be vexed by that, or you can absolutely be delighted by that. You know, you know, God gives us a blueprint. The blueprint is the Torah. The blueprint are the mitzvot, and we do the best that we can. Like, remember always the words of the Katzka Rebbe, which is, I don't, I would never worship a God that I understood. Right? Because if you completely understood God, so then you're also God. Right? What do you need God for? If you completely understand God, what do you need God for? Because you're as smart as God at that point. So one of the dynamics of God being God is, by definition, you not understanding him. So embrace the beauty of that, because there's true beauty to that. There's true beauty to that. There's wonderment in the relationship at that point, which is not an annoyance. It can be vexing. It can be heartbreaking. It can be devastating, right? Because, you know, there's a lot of sadness and brokenness in the world, unfortunately. Um, and, and we don't know why. But at the same time, that, that same aspect tells us that the one who's running the world, who's good, right? Because as we say over and over again, don't, don't kid yourself that you believe in God unless you also believe that God is good. If, if you don't 1000% know that God is good and that everything happens is for the good, then according to Judaism, you absolutely don't believe in God. You might believe in a great power that created the world, that created you, that gave us the Torah, you might believe in all those things, but you absolutely don't believe in God. You have to believe in God's goodness. Otherwise, also, by the way, you'll never make it through this world. You'll never make it through this world unless you understand that. Okay, so now that's a, a, a good point for us to transition to, to really what we want to talk about today. I want to talk about two things mainly today, which is just something super cool just in, in terms of just the name of this week's Parsha, Vayakha. Um, and then also I want to talk about the dynamics of confusion, right? Because life is very, very confusing. And I've been privileged to learn um, from the Or Torah from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver kind of a road map in terms of the metaphysics of confusion. I don't 
I, th I don't think I'm saying that too fancily. I think that that's actually what we're going to discuss. So, so, so let's start just with something, just because you know, I one of the things that I just love so much about the Torah is just the depths of the letters, the depths of what's contained in each word, you know, and and just that we just kind of have these opportunities just to get a little taste of just how, remember, we always say that the, the, the Torah itself is the infinite compressed into the finite. The Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. And um, no one should should kid themselves that when you talk about the Torah, that you're talking about a book. You're not talking about a book. You're talking about the will of God. The will of God that existed for the world even before the world existed. And that God formed his will into this world. And that was the Torah. So the Torah is actually all of reality itself. And now there's a blueprint form of that, but it's, it's phenomenally condensed. You know, I always remember, and that's, that's when we talk about the Chumash, when we talk about the written Torah, that, that, that's, that's what we have. But this is like, this is just a very, very finite um, uh, materialization of something that is the ultimate in expansiveness. Okay. So, so let's look at Vayakel. Because what we see in the word Vayakel, it's like, it's like these um, word pictures. I don't know if pictogram is actually a word, but, but there, there, there is something. You know, the, the, the French modernist poets, like Apollinaire and things like that, they would, they would draw pictures with words. They would make poems, but they would arrange the, the words in, in, in stylized ways so that it might be a poem about a flower, but he would write it in the shape of a flower. Right, so that was that was an early, that was an early form of of, of uh, modernist uh, writing, and and you see like pictures in, in, in words in in the Torah as well, not exactly in the same way, but anyway, so Vayakel. so my my good friend uh, Bension um, uh, shared this thought, and then and then I I, I just kind of ran with it a little bit, so. You know, up until now, we've been talking about the last several weeks. We've been talking about the part, the, the 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 sanctuary in the desert, the tabernacle in the desert, the mishkan, and we've had parshas and parshas, and we're still going to have another parsha next week about it. Okay, and so so what we've been describing up until now is the measurements of it and what goes in it and things like that, right? But what we've been lacking until this week is something very, very exciting, which is the command to actually make it. You know? Can you imagine, like, you've been learning the rules, like, for such a long time, and now, all of a sudden, God says, okay, go! Like, do it! Like, right now! Like, put the whole thing together! So that's, that's cool. That's, that's really cool, you know? So that's Parshas Vayakya. Now, all of a sudden, we're making it. And interestingly, just before we get to the point, this Parsha very famously happened the day after Yom Kippur. And that's, that's instructive to us on a, 
on a here and now level in terms of our own lives because we were about to start a project that was really in a way bigger than ourselves. Like we didn't really know how to do it. But God says, just show up and I'm going to put the wisdom in your heart. Right? It says that Betzalel actually combined the letters of the Aleph base, that he knew the secret to combining the letters of the Aleph base in order to make the Mishkan. It's an amazing thing, because we know the Mishkan was a miniature of the world, and that God created the world with the letters of the Aleph base. So, you know, what, what was involved in the actual making of this was beyond. But, but the point of making is the following. We started this project the day after the, the first Yom Kippur. So, the, so remember, Moshe goes up on uh, Rosh Chodesh Elul, the first day of the month of Elul, which we know is the, the preparation leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and everything like that. And for 40 days, Moshe is up there getting the second tablets and praying, you know, for full forgiveness for the, for the sin of the golden calf. 40 days later, Moshe comes down. The day he comes down, 40 days later, is Yom Kippur. That's the first Yom Kippur. We get forgiveness, and then the next day we begin building the Mishkan. So, so here's the point I want to make. If you want to start on a new project, begin by forgiving yourself. You know what? Get rid of all the baggage, because... Most projects, if they're worth anything, are pretty challenging. And you don't really know for sure that you're ever going to be able to complete it. That's most projects, if they're worth anything. Right? So if you are going to put yourself in a place where you're going to achieve something beyond yourself, you've got to, you've got to have a little Yom Kippur beforehand. You've got to like cleanse your soul beforehand. You got to get rid of the junk, get rid of the doubt, get rid of the anger, get rid of the accusations, get rid of all the woulda, shoulda, couldas, right? Give yourself a Yom Kippur, and then you can start. You know, because otherwise you're going to be holding yourself back. You know when those hot air balloons, like, go off, right? What is the first thing? Every time you ever see a hot air balloon go off, what's the first thing you do? You've got to cut the ropes. If you don't cut the ropes, you're not going anywhere. Right? You know what cutting the ropes is? Letting go of all that junk. So let go of it. Let go of it. And then you're going to be able to really scale the heights. Okay. That's, that's, that's number one. Um, number two. Let's, let's, let's look, and I, I mentioned Ben Sion's name, so let's, let's look at what he said. <clears throat> so, so it says in, it, it says, just so you can appreciate it, let, let's just do a little homework before we say the thought. It says in, 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 in the Talmud, in Gomorrah, uh, Menachos, um, that God created the world with the letters Yud and He. Okay, and of course, not coincidentally, those are the first two letters of the yud ke vav as well. So, um, so with the letter Yud, God created the Olam meaning to say the post-Messianic world, not heaven. Heaven and earth are one unit. Okay, we're talking about the perfected world. That's the letter Yud. And with the letter He, He created heaven and earth. Okay, now there's 
quite a bit to that teaching, but but just just keep that in mind. So that's the Gomorrah in Menachos. God created the world with the letters Yud and He. Now we also know that God spoke the world into creation. And again, it's always good to point out God doesn't have a mouth. God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. He doesn't have a body. Okay, but, but so to speak, we, we articulate it in this way so that our minds can just grasp just a, a, an iota of it, that God spoke the world into creation. So, or as Rib Shlomo famously said, right, based on a Zohar, that God sang the world into creation, right? So the word for voice, and, and, and even singing, by the way, is kol, kuf vav lamed, kol, right? So you want to hear something absolutely amazing? The Mishkan itself, what did we say? It says, the Medrash says that when God, when we finished the Mishkan, God rejoiced over the Mishkan like he rejoiced over the creation of, of, of the world, right? Because we know that the Mishkan itself was a miniature of the world, which we said God spoke or sang into existence, Right? With the letters what? Yud and He. That's what the Gemara says. So here, which is talking about the assembly of the Mishkan, Vayakel, if you rearrange the letters of Vayakel, it's Kol, Kuf, Lamed, Vav, Kuf, Vav, Lamed, Yud and He. <laughs> with the voice, with the singing of these letters, Yud and He, God created the world. And the Mishkan itself was a miniature of the world. And so this, this Torah portion, which is talking about putting all these elements together, is called Kol Yudin He. The voice, the singing of the letters Yudin He. How unbelievable is that? How unbelievable in one word do you have a massive teaching about the creation of the heavens of the earth, this world and the perfected world, the Mishkan itself, the dynamics through which they were created with, all in one word. And what's even more amazing is, did anyone know this a second ago? <laughs> you know, like during the reading of the Torah, well, actually in a break, you know, you can't talk when the Torah is being read, but during a break, Ben Sion just whispered in my ear, Vayakel is kol yud and he. And I was like, and then what I just told you came into my head. Right? So then he wanted to add to it further. So he says, yeah, but you know, the, so I told him what I just told you, and then he said back to me, but a person, the Mishkan is also a miniature of a person. <laughs> right? We know that Famously, the, the Mishkan is not just a miniature of the world, but also of a human being, right? And we, see, we say, like, the, the luchos, the tablets, are the brain, right? The menorah, that's the light, right? Those are the eyes, right? The incense altar is the nose, right? The mizbeach, the altar, is either the stomach or the mouth. <coughs> so we see that the Mishkan is a miniature of a human being. And as I always like to tell you, you know, uh, as Rabbi Shlomo would say, it's, it's always good to hear again. 
this parable that I absolutely love, which w- wasn't told in, in reference to what I'm, uh, how I'm going to apply it, but, but, um, but I'm going to use it to, to answer the question, how could it be that the Mishkan itself, the tabernacle, was simultaneously a microcosm of the world and of a human being? So, so the way this little story goes is a, a father comes home from work and he's thoroughly exhausted and he, he, his young child wants to play with him and he just doesn't have any strength. So he, he gets an idea how to buy some time. So he's reading the paper and on the paper there's a map of the world, complicated map, and so he makes a jigsaw puzzle out of it. He tears it into lots of little pieces and he puts it down and he tells the child, when you put together this map of the world, then we'll play. So he figures he's very smart. He's bought himself a lot of time. So a few moments later, the child comes back and says, I did it. And he's like, he can't believe it. So he goes and he looks, and in fact, he absolutely did it. And he says, how did you do that? And the child says, it was easy. On the other side, there was a picture of a person. And when I put the person together, the whole world fell into place. Right? So that's the idea that you fix yourself, you fix the whole world. This is part of the incredible empowerment of Torah because it shows you how awesome each person is and how exalted each person's soul is that the work that you do on yourself, not to get angry, not to get jealous, not to be accusing, all all of these things, not to judge, all of these things that you're doing within yourself reverberate throughout the entire world. Because you yourself are a miniature of the entire world. And on a more here and now level, what did the individual do at the Mishkan? They brought korbonos, they brought offerings in order to fix their soul. So here you see in a very clear way the dynamic between how a person is like a Mishkan, that when you fix yourself, right, the individual would bring offerings to fix themselves, but the Mishkan itself was a miniature of the world. So as the, the very moment that you were fixing yourself, you were fixing the world, right? Because the person was fixing themselves at the Mishkan, which is the world. So there's a simultaneity between fixing yourself and fixing the world. So, so, so what Ben-Sion added was that, was that each person is like a Mishkan, and as each person is fixing themselves, they're really like creating themselves as well. Right? So Vayakel, which is referring to how God creates the world with these letters, but he's not just creating the Mishkan. We ourselves are creating ourselves, which are, which are likened to a Mishkan. Right? And that process of creation is going on as well. And in that context, the word call is very interesting. Because when we talk about the greatness of Yaakov Avinu, we use the phrase, the kol Torah, the, the voice of Yaakov. And Yaakov stands for Torah. So how do we do it? We fix ourselves through Torah, through tefillah. This is the kol Yaakov. So the call is coming from heaven, which is the creation of the world. But the call is also coming, the kol Yaakov is also coming from us, in terms of us being partners with God, in terms of creating ourselves and thereby fixing the world. So there's a divine ecosystem going on, <laughs> right? It's going from above to below, and it's going from below to above simultaneously, 
right? We participate in creation through the repar- through the creation of ourselves, which is which is achieving our potential, basically. And remember, there is no there is no limit to where you can reach during your lifetime. And the reason is because God is infinite, and your soul is a little piece of God, which means you have infinity inside of you. And by definition, there is no ceiling to infinity. Right? So, so there is no end to where you can reach. And, and as we always say, and it's very important to, to, to make this clear all the time, if you think that you've reached the desired level, that's the greatest proof that you haven't reached the desired level. Because if you think you've arrived, that is proof positive that you haven't arrived. Because the journey is, by definition, endless. By, by dint of the fact that your soul is infinite, that's proof that the journey is endless. You see, Rabbi Nachman talks about how with each new level that a person attains, they have to realize that they know nothing. Now, that's a very hard thing to do, because as you learn something new and exalted, at that moment, what do you feel? The great satisfaction of finally knowing something. (laughs) Now, that's not to take away the joy of learning Torah and the satisfaction of growing, you have to have that because you need good self-esteem and that powers everything, right? But then you have to remember, oh yeah, but I also don't know nothing. I, don't, I also don't know anything, right? And as Reb Shlomo Karlovak so brilliantly said, um, I asked him a question. I said, how, how is it that a person can stay on fire, right? How do you stay on fire? And he answered back, that you have to treat each new piece of information that you get as a puzzle piece in a puzzle that you don't have the other pieces for. <laughs> Meaning to say, imagine if you, you're assembling a jigsaw puzzle, but all you're given is one puzzle piece. <laughs> so, so the brilliance of this is that, is that most people, when they learn something, they think they've been given the entirety of something. And then you can fall into the illusion of feeling as though you know something. Because you feel like you just got the whole complete package. But if every time you learn something, you have very much in the forefront of your mind that you're only receiving a small piece, then you can simultaneously acquire something new while contextualize the higher level of not knowing. (laughs) Because you don't have the remaining pieces. So this is a, that's a tremendous tool for, for uh, continued spiritual growth. Okay. So now I'm going to move on to the second point. It sounds sort of fancy, but I like the way it sounds, which is sort of like the metaphysics of confusion, right? So, so let's talk about that for a moment. So you see... Let's let's just talk about uh, let's just review our model that we've been working with up until now, but we're going to apply this in a different way, and ultimately all these things are saying the same thing. You see, ultimately, the the grand question that we have, and what Kabbalah itself really addre- is 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 addressing, right? But all all sorts of deep sort of like. Um, 
you know, uh, inquiries into the universe. All these things are basically addressing this single question, which is, how did God, who's infinite and beyond all boundaries, right, how did he create a finite world? Right? How do you get from the infinity of God to the finiteness of this world? What's that process? So there are probably hundreds of paradigms addressing that process. Everywhere from astrophysics, right, to quantum physics, right, to Kabbalah, to all, all sorts of, and then within Torah study, there's zillions of different takes on exactly how to approach that. And they're not redundant. They're all approaching it from different angles. And then when you fuse them together over time and you learn more and more of these paradigms, you begin to really sort of grasp just, just how awesome everything is, right? But remember, as, um, as Dr. Braun, who's very, uh, uh, very close to Rabbi uh, Moshe Wolfson, Shlita said to me one time that when you get into more sort of advanced type of Torah thoughts, you, you might hear things that sound like contradictions. You have to be very aware of the fact that none of these things, if they're coming from a Torah true source, are contradictions. You're just learning different paradigms, right? And the paradigms, so you, you just have to make sure that you don't um, mislearn deep things, right? And, and in general, if you don't understand something, or, you, or it rubs you the wrong way, but it's from a very authentic source, you're, you should train yourself that your first instinct should be to say, I clearly don't understand it, as opposed to rejecting it. Right? Because that's, that's, that's a, very crucial, it's a very crucial character trait. That, that you have to have, which is basically humility. It's, you have to have the humility to say, I don't understand it, and this is baffling to me, as opposed to rejecting it. Because if it's from a Torah true source, that means you're the problem, the teaching is not the problem. Right? And it could be that you're never going to understand it, and you know what? That's good too, because God's infinite. There, it's appropriate that there should be a large number of things that we'll never understand. That's appropriate. That's not unjust or like the system's rigged or corrupt, God forbid. It's, it's, it's appropriate. It's appropriate. Um, okay. So now let's just review the, the paradigm that we've been working with thus far, and then we're going to apply it in a new interesting way. So... So what we've been saying up until now is, remember, we have two stages of tzimtzum, right? The, the, and that's the dynamics of creation, of, of the material world coming into, into being. The first stage is that, so to speak, God clears an empty space within himself, right? And, and then he shines a light, right, into this empty space, and then he creates the physical world. So, so, and obviously it's way beyond that. And, and also keep in mind that all of this imagery is just imagery, not to be taken too literally. This is just so that we have some hook to hang our 
brains on, right? Because otherwise we, we won't be able to do anything, right? So don't, don't take any of these words too literally. That's very important. Especially when we talk about vessels and smashed vessels and things like that. All these things are, are metaphorical, but they're super, super deep. Um, okay. So the first thing that you have to know is the ultimate existential joke, which is that the empty space that God creates, right, in order to create this finite world, that empty space that God creates is also filled with God, <laughs> right? Because how can it not be? And, and wherever you go, wherever, wherever you are, even the darkest place, God is right there with you, right? And that God is as present in this dimension of reality as he is in the highest dimensions of reality. He's just substantially more concealed. But concealed doesn't mean any less present. That is fully present, fully, fully, fully present in this dimension. It's just he's very concealed. Okay. So, so the, the, the imagery that, 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 that I always like, and again, we'll just review it quickly and then we'll get to the new point, is if you think of like, um, again, so God makes this empty space and he shines this light and the light is a single spectrum, and along that spectrum it becomes more and more condensed until the ethereal, right, that, that sort of amazing light, that amazing energy, becomes condensed into the material, right? And this is what Einstein was talking about, E equals mc squared, right? That energy ultimately becomes matter, and that's the that's the formula for it. That's, that's the greatness of E equals mc squared, showing how energy, right, becomes matter. So that's what we've been saying in terms of Jewish thought for thousands of years. The greatness of Einstein was that he was actually able to quantify that, 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 that dynamic. That's an amazing thing. Okay. So again, just to give you something a little more concrete to, to, to visualize... Imagine, uh, let's work backward. Let's work now from the material to the spiritual, okay? So, and really what we're talking about is the creation of the world right now, but we'll give the example of ice. Let's start with ice. So ice is a solid, but the molecule of ice is H2O, right? And then as the, the ice cube melts, it becomes water, right? But it's so it's a completely different form. But the molecule is H2O. Didn't change. Then let's say you boil the water like a like a teapot and it becomes water vapor and you can't even see it really. But the molecule is the same, it's H2O. So this is, so to speak, the process of creation itself. God is taking the outer aspect of his light. Okay, and he's condensing it. This is like godly energy. He's condensing it and condensing it, bringing it, so to speak, from water vapor to water to ice, from the spiritual down into the material, right? Which means that all of materiality is just condensed spirituality, right? So that's like one of my favorite things that when, when, when someone says, oh, I'm not spiritual, 
brother, you're, that's, that you're condensed spirituality. That's all you are, is condensed spirituality. What do you mean you're not spiritual? That's, that's literally all you are. You know? But the, 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 the tool that I think is so important here, beyond just that information, is that we understand that the journey from spirituality to materiality is one single spectrum. Most people think of it as two separate ideas, that there's the material, and then somewhere disconnected, floating up there, is the spiritual. And the utility of this is to understand that it's one continuum, right? That it's all one. Okay. Now let's talk about confusion. Now we're ready to address the point. So Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, who's really one of our greatest Kabbalists and was in the school of the Vilna Gon, right? A couple of generations after the Vilna Gon. And in the oratory, he explains that um, he's going to talk about this process from the standpoint of Torah. All right? Now, remember, we said that... that um, and, and bless you. Now, so now, now we're going to talk about a very similar thing, but now we're going to be using the language of a different paradigm. Okay? We're going to use the paradigm of Torah right now instead of energy. Okay? And it's going to have different consequences. But you'll see how we're talking about basically the same thing. Okay? But it will give us an insight into different aspects of how confusing life is in a moment. So, so, so there are, there, there are, you know, Reb Shlomo has a, a story called uh, The Ocean of Tears. And you can, if you don't, if you don't know it, I, 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 I'm not going to do justice to it, really. So you should just listen to it online. Google Ocean of Tears, right? And, and if you can hear Reb Shlomo telling it, that, that would be great because it's, um, it, it's so good. It's so good. And in that, in that story, it's about... Um, it's about the Kutzka Rebbe, and um, oh, actually, it's about the Vorka Rebbe, who is best friends with the with the Kutzka Rebbe, and um, and and in, in the story itself, I'm not attempting to tell you the story, but in the story, it talks about how the Vorka Rebbe is going to various heavenly yeshivas, and so that always like like stuck in my mind, like this idea that there are, are academies of Torah learning above. You know? But here Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver talks, talks about that in, in, in a slightly different way, but, but validating, not, not that it needed to be validated, but, but validating this construct of heavenly yeshivas. Now there's a, there's a very high heavenly yeshiva, and that's a place of total clarity. Okay? Now there's a yeshiva below that called the Mesifta Derekia. Right? Like, I, I promise you, it's a good day today for all of you to just know that there's such a thing as the Mesifta Derekia. Just the fact that you know that now. Just, you're lucky to have woken up. I'm, I'm serious. Right? Just to know that that exists and you know that now. 
So the Masifta de Rakia, you know, sometimes yeshivas today are called Masiftas, right? That means academies of Torah, Torah learning. But you have the Masifta de Rakia. The Rakia is the firmament basically separating heaven and earth. Okay? So the Masifta de Rakia is on the heavenly side of this boundary between heaven and earth. The Masifta de Rakia is where different opinions about the Torah begin. You see? So in other words, the yeshiva, there's a yeshiva above that, which is a place of total clarity. But now when you get a step below, you have the Masifta de Rakia, where anyone who's learned a Mishnah, right, knows that every Mishnah is composed of two opinions, three opinions, four opinions, five opinions. You already have the breaking up of clarity or the beginning of confusion. And here what we have now, if you align the two paradigms that we've been learning up until now, the first paradigm was talking about the journey of divine energy into the material. Now the material world is a place where you can have free choice because God is concealed. So now we're learning a parallel paradigm where we're talking about utter clarity, but as you get closer to materiality, what do you have? The beginning of different opinions. Isn't that interesting? Do you see how that's a complete parallel construct, but it's talking about the same thing, the journey of the Torah into this world? Now, it was pointed out to me that in the Talmud, there's just a reference and it's a whole story. This is an epic story, one of the most epic stories in all of the Talmud, and we can't tell it right now. But basically, there's a whole story about how Shlomo Amelech, his battle against the king of the demons, Ashmedai. Right? And there's a reference that Ashmedai is learning in the Masifta de Rakia. But it doesn't go into any more depth than that. So what is Ashmedai doing in the Masifta de Rakia? Well, okay, wait a second. If we understand that Shlomo Amelech is the embodiment of wisdom, wisdom is clarity, and his battling against Ashmedai, right? That's the beginning of confusion. Where would Ashmedai be located? in the Masifta de Rikia, where all of a sudden multiple opinions begin, right? So that would be the, the appropriate placement of that energy. Do you hear? Right, because all angels are different energies, right? So with this in mind, we're gonna get much deeper now, okay? With this in mind, let's revisit one of the, for me, one of the classic Torahs in the, in the Or Torah, which is the letter Aleph. The letter Aleph is a diagram of this world, okay? Now remember, we know that the letter Aleph is composed of three letters. There's the, the Yud above, then there's the diagonal Vav, and then there's the Yud Bula, right? So, so Rav Yitzhak Eisekhaver points out the fact, remember, it says in the Talmud, wherever you see reference to water, it's talking about Torah. Torah equals water. 
Okay, that's just no. So the upper Yud refers to the upper waters of Torah, meaning the hidden aspects, the secret aspects of Torah, right? The higher, the higher ones. Then the lower Yud refers to the revealed aspects of Torah. Bless you. And the Vav represents the Rekia, that line between heaven and earth. Now, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver points out, now this is amazing, that that, he says that Vav is the Rekia, that's the, the firmament, the line between heaven and earth. That Vav, the number for Vav, the Gematria Vav is six, and there's six orders of the Mishnah, he points out. The Mishnah is where clarity begins to break down. So isn't it interesting that the name of the yeshiva, where they're starting to learn Mishnah, is the Masifta de Rikia. That's the vav between the upper waters of total clarity of the Torah and the lower waters. You have that vav, which is the Mishnah, which is the Rikia, and the name of the yeshiva where they're learning the Mishnah where all clarity breaks down, the journey from heaven to earth, where things start to become confusing, is called the Masifta de Rikia. Okay. So now, let's go further, because with this in mind, I was able to, I think, understand, or at least have a thought on, a teaching that Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says earlier in the Or Torah that just just knocked me out when I read it, but I, I couldn't wrap my mind around it, but it knocked me out. Which is, everybody knows that Moshe, his undoing is, Hashem says to him, speak to the rock, right? Take your staff in your hand, right? And what is the staff? Right, I'm adding this. The staff is a vav. The staff is the rakia. The staff is the separation between heaven and earth. Take your staff in your hand and speak to the rock. Right? Earlier in the Torah, he's supposed to hit the rock. Now, take your staff in your hand and speak to the rock. What's happening right now? Basically, basically, the vav is about to be removed. Do you understand? It's not just don't take the staff. Take the staff and don't use it. Take separation between heaven and the earth and don't activate it. Don't use it to hit. When you hit, you're, you're, you're putting a divide between you and someone else. Take the staff, but don't use the staff. Speak to the rock and water is going to come out of the rock. In other words, visualize the olive again. The upper Yud, you have the staff, which is the Vav, and the lower Yud. Take the staff, remove the staff, now speak to the rock and water, which is Torah, is going to come out. In other words, what's going to happen? The higher waters and the lower waters are about to merge. Confusion is about to be separated and lifted out of the world. Moshe tragically hits the rock. He reaffirms the separation. He reaffirms confusion. 
And what does God say? You are about to make the greatest Kiddush Hashem, the greatest sanctification of all time. By speaking to the rock, and the rock was going to gush water. And you didn't do it. You kept that separation in the world stuff. Now, Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says, what was Moshe supposed to say to the rock? This is the incredible thing. We don't know. It doesn't say in the Torah. But Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver tells us what Moshe was supposed to say to the rock. And I never understood this. But now, with everything we've been saying, I think that we can give the following explanation. Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver says Moshe was supposed to teach the rock a Mishnah. Now that's totally esoteric and unintelligible unless we understand that the location of the Mishnah is the Vav, is the staff, is the separation between heaven and earth, is the source where opinions start to multiply and clarity begins to break down. But if Moshe Rabbeinu, who gets the Torah from heaven, whose total clarity, who we're told is going to be a greater prophet than even Mashiach, right? That's why anyone who's claiming to be Mashiach, who goes against the word of Moshe Rabbeinu, is a liar and a fraud. Because Moshe has the ultimate clarity. And Moshe, who represents the ultimate clarity, is about to teach the rock, which is the essence of materiality. Right? What do we... What does it say when Mashiach comes, when the fixing of the world comes, our hearts, which are like rocks now, are going to turn into flesh? Moshe is going to teach the rock Mishnah, so the upper, upper, utmost clarity, the one who represents that, is going to bring it down to the, the depths of materiality. Not just the physical world, but the physicality within ourselves, our hearts which are like rocks. And he's going to explain a Mishnah, meaning he's going to rid the world of all confusion. And now you say, what's the big deal? He hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and for that, Moshe can't go into Israel? Well, now at least it makes sense in my mind when you understand the, the, the huge implications, right? So there's confusion in the world. There's confusion in the world. And just like there's materiality in the world, there's also confusion in the world. Because as we get to a more material world, also the Torah itself becomes much more confusing with many more opinions and things like that. But we say, Torah emet. The Torah is a Torah of truth. Right? And we live in a very confusing world, but don't think that that means that therefore there isn't truth. Right? Can you imagine someone says, you know what? 
I went to three Chinese restaurants. I didn't like any of them. So therefore, I have proof that there's no such thing as a good Chinese restaurant. Okay, my friend, they exist. You just didn't go to one of them. One should understand that confusion is one of the elements that we have to contend with in this world. It's a, it's a natural product, byproduct, of God wanting to create an environment where we have free choice. But there is truth. There is truth. And the challenge of our generation, the challenge of the world itself, is to be able to live the truth of the world, which is Hashem, which is the Torah, while at the same time using it as a way to unify all the people of the world and not divide them. And this is very, very hard. Because when other people feel as though they have the truth, all you have to do is read any newspaper to see what their next step is. They will pick up a gun and kill you for saying that you have the truth. So how do you maintain peace and truth simultaneously? And this is, this is the big project that, that we're in the middle of right now. How can we assert a single truth at the same time as doing so, making everyone feel valuable and, and blessed and one of God's children without anyone losing their sense of dignity? Right? And this is really, on a deeper level, what the assembling of the Mishkan is all about. Because the Mishkan was the miniature of a perfected world. And the job of putting together all these varying pieces so that they should all fit together and go together, right? You see, what everyone keeps on doing is, you know when you get from Ikea and things like that, like the big bookshelves, and then you finish the product, but you've got like nine pieces that are left over <laughs> and you just throw them out. It doesn't work when it comes to putting together the world. You can't say, okay, we solved everything except the Arabs. So we'll just, you know, just kind of move those over here. We'll just keep those in the little cellophane package. <laughs> but we did it. No, no, no. You got to take all of the pieces. You got to take all of the pieces and use all of the pieces. Right? And it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. But, you know, we've tried so many different strategies. And, you know, love seems to be the best one, right? As we always say, the gematria of Ava is the same as Echad, love and oneness.
right? It's the same number. So if you want to unify, you know, we just got to try love. And uh, and the same thing goes with ourselves and one with this point, which is that, you know, I heard Rabbi Katz, Daniel Katz say it, and I, I really liked it, which is that he said that um, he was talking about how Rabbi Nachman says that when um, when there's dancing in shul, and you know, if you go to the happy minion, especially on a Friday night, you'll see this. But in, you see this all over. And Rabbi Nachman saying this, you know, a couple hundred years ago, so it's been true for a long time. People will say be dancing in shul, but there will always be the people who who aren't dancing. <laughs> and then some people try to pull them in, right? And then they, they still don't want to dance, whatever it is. And that's fine, too. You know, everyone should just do what, what feels right. You know, but... Rabbi Nachman says on a deeper level that what's those people who aren't part of the dance, that that what's going on inside of each person is there's all the distractions that are in a person's head and all the different worries. And so the the idea is if you have a troubling thought is to push it away so that it shouldn't bother you. So you just want to push it away. And so Rabbi Nachman says that the people who aren't part of the circle, who aren't part of the dance, are a manifestation in this world on a physical level of your internal dynamic. That just like you're pushing away, just like you're pushing away a thought because you don't want to think about it, those people are in outside the circle and they don't want to dance. So I told this to someone and they said, oh, so that means that you should really like try to bring, you know, that person who doesn't want to be part of the dance, you know, in the room is sitting in the chair, bring him into the circle. Just kind of just, you know, do your best to get him to dance. And I said, no, that's not the point. The point is, is that you solve that problem internally. So Rabbi Katz continued that you take those distractions and instead of pushing them away, you pull them toward the light. In other words, you don't push them further into the darkness. You bring them into the light. So, for instance, he gave the example. If, you're, if it's Shabbos and you're worrying about your parnosa, you're, you're worrying about your livelihood, and you can't, you're thinking, ah, I need some cash, I need some cash bad, right? But at the same time, you can be saying, well, it's Shabbos, I can't work now anyway. And you know what? Right now i got some clothes on my back. I'm with some people. I'm in a nice environment. I've got food for now, thank God. So, so in other words, what you're doing is you're taking the worry and you're bringing it into the light. Right? So you have other worries. But instead of pushing them away, bring them into the light. You know what? I don't have X, whatever it is. But I'm in one piece, and I'm in a nice place right now. I'm breathing. I'm out. Things are okay. So by bringing those things toward you, by unifying yourself, right, that will then theoretically have a ripple effect on the room as well, right? But the reason why I'm saying this is just to finish on this point of Vayakel 
that you're building the Mishkan, that you yourself are a Mishkan, you yourself are a sanctuary, and that that building process, not to take over the leftover Ikea pieces and throw them away, right? But to take them into the, bring them into the light, bring them into yourself, and that way you can be a whole, complete person. And when you're whole and complete, that will bring wholeness and completion to the entire world.